Hi everyone, it's Simone here. Welcome back to episode six of Radio Monash's No Theory. Today we'll be chatting with award-winning writer and doctoral candidate slash teaching and research assistant at the Monash Climate Change Communication Research Hub, James Bergman Milner. James's doctoral research focuses on narrative forms of climate change communication, while his fiction and arts journalism have been published widely. His co-authored book, Science Fiction and Climate Change, a Sociological Approach, was shortlisted for both the British Science Fiction Association Awards and the Locus Awards. His debut novel, Children of Tomorrow, which was highly commended in the Victorian Premier's Literary Awards this year, will be published by Upswell Publishing in early 2023. Welcome, James. How are you? Um, thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm well. Uh, uh, I'm exhausted. I'm living through the pandemic, of course. We, you know, we were chatting before. And uh, yeah, and I have to think about climate change now as well. So uh, it's just another layer on top of the pandemic constantly to think about. So, yeah, but I, I am well in spite of all the uh, horrors that we'll probably talk about uh, for the next 50 minutes or so. So, yeah, yeah, I'm coping. <laughs> Setting this episode up with um, such lighthearted, fun ideas. Listen, I am a lighthearted person, I'll be honest. But, uh, uh, yeah, but the topics, uh, yeah. Uh, maybe, I'm, maybe I'm the right person to deal with those topics. I don't know. Anyway, yeah. Uh, doomsday conversation can be fun, um, despite yeah. the terminology. It's a sure. great genre, a great genre, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So um, obviously we've just uh, listed a few of your achievements and, and given this, this brief summary of you, James, but could you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Um, yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> that's, a, uh, that's an open one for me. I could go anywhere with that. Uh, well, I, I guess, uh, you know, I've been, um, I've been a researcher, you know, uh, at Monash in the PhD program now for five, six years. Um, that's been a part-time thing. And on the side of that, yeah, I've been pursuing a career in writing as, as best as I can, um, which is, you know, you could guess is a bit of a grind. Uh, yeah, and so I had, you know, I'm doing that as well as being a primary carer for my, my two kids who were both born during the PhD. So it's been, a, it, yeah, that's that's kind of my life at the moment. Um, you know, I guess uh, on the side of that, on the boring, like, what do you do? What sort of person are you? You know, um, I'm also a musician. Uh, and, you know, I, I always, I've been asked the question recently, like, what would you do if you weren't, um, doing, you know, writing and research, I'd probably play, be playing um, football constantly. So that's what I, you know, did for years before going into academia. So, um, yeah, as in, and when I say football, I mean as in as in soccer, um, being being half British. So, yeah, it's footy. I should have said footy, you know, not footy, uh, but yeah. So that, those, are the th those are the things I, you know, I do on the side of, in life. Uh, though not during lockdowns, of course, none of those things are available to us, it seems. So, yeah. So that, that's basically me. Um, but yeah, my focus very much and, and my passion is very much around writing at the moment and just uh, getting this uh, novel that we might talk about, getting that um, signed off and published is the, the real task I'm uh, focusing on at the moment. Uh, yeah, that, that, that's me, I guess. Yeah. And um, in all of those things that you're doing, um, what are you passionate about? Well, I mean, I, th I think really in terms of, you know, um, my focus and, and the passion at the moment for a long time, for quite a few years, has been on climate change. And, um, you know, that's why I kind of moved into working with the Climate Change Communication Research Hub. It, it, my writing in most of the time has a climate focus. You know, some of the work I've done in recent years, uh, you know, might not. But generally, you know, the novels I've been reviewing or, you know, the articles I've been writing have been really um, with a a focus on climate to one degree or another and framing things in relation to climate change because it's you know amazing actually 
when you start to really look at things closely, how much can be related to climate change? You know, like, um, you know, a piece I did earlier in the year was about publishing and about, you know, the practices within the publishing industry. And I just, you know, that I focused that through the lens of climate change and, and, and you know, wasteful use of products and things like that. Uh, when you just expand things out to that lens, you can sort of almost cover anything, really, and, and rethink things, actually, that have just been left unexamined. Um, so yeah, that's really where my focus and passion is on. It probably will wane, you know, it's a tiring, it's a tiring topic and I'm at the end of the PhD now with a few, a few months to go. Um, so maybe that might change afterward. Who knows what I'll get into after, after that. So, but climate change isn't going anywhere. So unfortunately, anyway, yeah. <laughs> and um, what initially inspired you to get involved with studying and teaching climate change communication? Uh, well, so before then, in the early days of my PhD, uh, I wasn't actually with the Climate Change Communication Research Hub, and my topic was actually had a slightly different focus. Um, I was looking more at um, at sort of intergenerational uh, legacy, you know, how what we pass on by generation by generation. I had this idea of building a novel uh, over a hundred years, over this century. But then the more I did that, because the, the PhD has a creative writing focus. Um, the more I did that, I realised, well, climate change is the dominant overarching concern there over the next hundred years. So, but before then, you know, I was teaching and researching within literature and creative writing more strictly. Uh, and I was also teaching in Australian Indigenous studies uh, and sort of my undergrad as well was in English literature. So the shift to climate change communication was more directed by where the project naturally went around the middle of the PhD it sort of shifted into realising I had to also talk about how there's this whole area of communicating climate change to the world that is underexamined, and that's in fiction and storytelling. Uh, you know, I, I looked at climate change communication closely and it was generally defined by political, scientific and sociological concerns. And, and, and there's only maybe marginal, you know, very, um, on the edges, edges of that discipline, there was a little bit of, of a look at storytelling and popular media and, and you know, film and video games and, and novels and how they you know, translate or at least communicate climate change to a, to a larger audience. Uh, and so, yeah, and that's why, you know, I came into the Climate Change Communication Hub and the director there, David Holmes, um, sort of, you know, helped guide the project. And now he's one of my supervisors. He came in during the project. So I've ended up there in a, you know, in a nice, comfy, natural place, really. It's, um, and since I've been there, um, storytelling and narrative has become a, more of a focus in climate change communication generally in, 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 that, in a scholarly field. Um, you know, the latest um, handbook on climate change communication that was published uh, about a year ago now actually included um, climate fiction as a part of its focus in the final chapter. So it's becoming more and more part of uh, consideration considerations about how we communicate to the public with climate change. You know, we need to tell a really good story. We don't just need to tell them facts well or tell them to the right people and things like that in the right way. It's also about storytelling and that's becoming more and more evident, I think. So yeah, so that's how I've sort of ended up there. And you've kind of mentioned um, just before that, you know, it can be a bit you know, depressing <laughs> to talk about climate change <laughs> and you yeah. know, the lack of response from governments and all of that. So how do you remain um, sane whilst studying this? <laughs> uh, I never said I was sane. Um, <laughs> uh, I have been going insane. I mean, all PhD researchers go insane. Um, I mean, it's like any other job as well. I, I think it's important to make that distinction. Uh, PhD researchers often get so closely 
attached and identified with their research and project. And same with, you know, any level of research, postdoctoral research, or even when you're doing an honours thesis or any essay in undergrad, um, or just any piece of writing, um, it's quite a, you know, uh, intense process to go through, uh, or, you know, or writing a novel. And um, I think insanity is actually, it's kind of, let's not say insanity, let's say going a little bit mad is actually a very sane response. And I'd be more concerned about myself if I wasn't going a little bit uh, crazy. Uh, you know, if you have, if you're totally fine with, oh, pandemic and totally fine with, you know, anthropogenic warming and you're happy about everything and getting on with life, I'd be concerned about myself if I was feeling those things. <laughs> so sometimes like, you know, my, my, my partner, Jess, sometimes sort of, you know, makes the same jokes and makes, makes the same joke kind of that, um, you know, oh, don't worry that you're so stressed about this. That's a healthy response to the to this, you know, psychological stimuli when you're reading about the latest thing that's happening to the planet, or the, the latest findings, or or whatnot, or the latest inaction on climate change from our favourite government uh, here in Australia. Uh, it's it's you know it's a rational response to go insane. So yeah, but to answer it more, you know, with less facetiously, uh, I think one of the ways I do stay. Uh, broadly under control when I'm focusing on this topic a lot is to look at um, the ways in which uh, the people who actually are going to be determining determining these things in the future, the direction that's going in. Right now we're dealing with a lag uh, in, in progress by people who aren't going to be affected by climate change so much. You know, people who will be you know, to be blunt, dead in the middle of the century. And they're determining, determining these things for us. I'm very hopeful about people, um, younger people, and where they want that future to go. And, and I do think that this is a critical decade, and, and I remain hopeful for this decade. I might feel different in 2030 if we haven't done anything, but it's a very critical decade. The, the data is clear on that. And, um, you know, as we go into Glasgow next month for Climate Summit, um, for, for COP26, I, uh, yeah, I remain very hopeful. So, uh, and I do genuinely mean that. I, I do, there's a lot of things I am hopeful about and, you know, we can talk about them specifically later, but broadly speaking, I do actually still have a lot of hope. That's, um, that's really good to hear. It's definitely not the, <laughs> the overwhelming or majority sort of discourse that we hear a lot. It tends to focus on, I guess, the, the doomsday aspect um, and a lack of hope, but I suppose that is also what sells that kind of conflict in the well, media. I mean, I don't know about you. get those clicks off. I mean, I don't know about you guys. You guys, you know, watch, you know, with movies that you watch. But you know, Doomsday is compelling. It's a, it's it's traditionally been compelling. I think I don't I don't know what you make of it, but climate change has a distinctly different set of needs narratively. Um, but we've tended for very long until very recently, we've just gone into the the default kind of nuclear holocaust or the plague kind of narratives to to talk about climate change. We've used those old forms of storytelling. So um, it's always about the apocalypse in some way, you know, an ending, you know, a definitive ending. And that lets us kind of get off the hook. You know, when we look at the apocalypse, we go, oh, that's the end. Well, you know, like The Road, think about Cormac McCarthy's The Road and the movie that was made of it. It's just an impossible, it's, it's an irretrievable ending. Can't come back from such things. And it, it lets us off the hook with thinking about the complexities and continuing sort of uh, struggle and horrors that come with climate change and the, you know, you know, how will people live in really, you know, you know, uh, high risk areas of the world in the future and things like that. It's not just the world's going to end suddenly. Climate change is about actually the world's just going to be worse. And that's a distinctly more difficult thing to narrate. 
and perhaps more maybe more boring for for the way we've been trained to listen to stories so yeah doomsday is is very um compelling uh, narrative framing and that's in our media too you know uh, when we you know, the alarmist calls saying you know it's code red for humanity and things like that you know with the latest ipcc report i think we just need to be you know really conscious of the way in which we frame this this problem because how we frame it will also determine how we think we can manage it and um actually fix it so yeah sorry bit of a bit of a i don't know what you make of that maybe the apocalypse isn't the right way to talk about climate change i mean would you agree no yeah, definitely i mean, that's I mean how you define you go, sorry, Lydia. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, Simone. I guess it's it's simplifying the narrative a little bit and making it far more compact and black and white. Um, yeah. So as you said, we don't have to think about those those nuanced those nuances or perhaps those more like boring but devastating details and the fact that it's going to be a slow mm. process. Um, and I suppose our own involvement as well. Um, yeah, absolutely. Like taking away our agency. Yes, it it may sort of like nullify some hope, but at the same time, it's taking away responsibility um, and almost just, you know, passively saying this is happening to us rather than, well, we have induced it and therefore we can do something about it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Agency is key, I would, I would argue, yeah. And I, I don't want to be like alarmist, but like maybe, you know, it seems like, you know, having to live with climate change is probably even worse than just, like, not having to live at all if, like, everyone dies in this, like, apocalypse. Yes. It, like, yeah. it takes, it's, like, a bit, it's a bit comforting in a strange kind of perverted way to be, like, oh, well, everything's going to end. Um, yeah. Like, if you kind of feel in control a little bit, like, even, I like, I was thinking about it before, like, when the earthquake happened um, <laughs> that night, I watched a natural disaster movie. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> like, literally just because the earthquake happened. Yeah. And, like, maybe I think that kind of is in some strange way me trying to, like, feel in control of the situation. Um, was, it classic? was it a classic disaster movie? We're talking, what are we talking here? It was... Dante's Peak with yep. the volcano, yep. yeah. Oh, great, great choice. Um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that what you said there, Simone, as well, is, is exactly spot on. You know, um, James Bradley, one of the main climate novelists in Australia, uh, I heard him make that point that it's so, the apocalypse is, e is a cop-out. It's, it's just easy. You know, if that's the end. There's no real debate to be had about what to do, you know, with climate change. If we have these hundreds of questions to ask about, well, as the, you know, as things get worse, who holds on to power? How do we distribute things? You know, all these really complex questions that will come with the um, with the, with the unfolding climate, you know, um, climate realities we will face. Um, and then the apocalypse asks none of those complex questions necessarily. Not to say that, you know, apocalyptic literature and apocalyptic storytelling isn't valuable in, in other ways. Um, so it certainly is in other ways. Uh, I just question, you know, the validity of it when, when we talk about climate change, because climate change is not the apocalypse, I think, is what I'm getting at. It's not the the, mm. the end times. It's not some biblical rapture. Um, and, and, and you know, and the traditional concept of apocalypse is, you know, is, you know, actually is built with this sort of concept of renewal. You know, um, you know this is going back scripturally, uh, this idea that, that there is this, you know, reckoning. And there is this ending. And then actually then in the wake of that, there is a new world. And that's kind of, you know, Noah and the flood. And, and that's also too too simple for climate change. Um, we're not simply going to be able to turn off climate change and start a new world. It's, it's not like that at all. So, yeah, we'll, 
yeah, that's what that's that's that's. I'll leave it there. You can maybe maybe you can go do a thesis on that or something like that. <laughs> so thinking yeah. about these different sort of framings, um, yeah. obviously at No Theory we're very interested in challenging the status quo, not to push yeah. our agenda too much. But how do you think climate change communication may object to the status quo, particularly when compared to perhaps the status quo in mainstream media? Um. Yeah, that's a really interesting one, and I can guarantee the people I work with at the uh, at the hub would be able to answer it better. Uh, trying to imagine it for them, and, and even a little bit for me, is one of the things that's sort of key about climate change communication is that it works within a frame that is very conscious of the status quo, or the ways in which people have been trained to receive media and think about media, uh, and also science and politics. How basically we've you know people exist in a socio-cultural context they're sort of informed by that and you sort of have to be really aware of those things when you're communicating to them about climate change because it's climate change unfortunately is an issue that has been framed in um, inaccurate ways uh not just scientifically but also politically it's been politicized in a way that it inherently is not a, you know climate is not inherently a political issue and it really wasn't a, a political issue when it was first brought to the attention of the world until the fossil fuel lobby kind of revved up and built this a denialist campaign a very sophisticated one actually um you know three decades ago so in terms of the status quo i think what it does most in 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 sort of pushing against the status quo is it's subtly is trying to um, trying to uh, reinform people about misconceptions that they're not at fault for. It's actually that they, the people, have been um, have been misled by or let down by information uh, that they've received during their lifetimes. And there's all sorts of ways in which this sort of you know we, we can go into all sorts of things and talk about Murdoch and media and things like that down the track but yeah I think the way the way in which it pushes against the status quo is a subtle one it's a kind of realigning and you have to be really careful you can't just talk to people about climate change and say no we need to do this this and this climate change is actually when you're communicating it um, the goal here is to increase things like climate literacy when people have a deeper understanding of the better understanding of the science they're more likely then to also um, behave or act on that in in different ways okay so it's about maybe um changing people's you know level of climate literacy so that their knowledge of climate change and uh, so it's subtle it's not you know climate change communication is a discipline that's actually not uh, very overtly pushing against the status quo but working within it to tinker it so that people start to uh, think about climate change quite differently yeah so climate change communication is not some you know uh, big you know political uprising but uh i think uh what's really crucial about it is it does the job uh, it does a job that has for many decades not been done in schools in um you know in pu public discourse in media and things like that and uh, really the last 20 years and 30 years has been a, it, with climate change it's been a legacy and history of failure by media by journalists by politicians and to some degree even by scientists if we if we want to go and, and look at things really closely but mainly not 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 by scientists mostly um in communicating this issue to the public yeah it's been a communication failure for for a long time and i think it's got a lot better in recent years so that's how it pushes against the status quo mm. which is yeah and and when you um talk about like even in schools climate change communication has failed like now that i'm reflecting on it like when I did the climate change communication unit at Monash, um, that was like the first time I really got a proper education on what mm. even climate change was. Like I always knew, 
and I was always passionate about it, but like, I didn't know what aerosols were. I didn't know that like, yeah, you know, the details about how the sea is warming. I didn't know any of that. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, that's concerning because I did this as an elective um, just because I'm like, oh, this sounds really interesting. And I think actually I, it wasn't even my first choice, to be honest. <laughs> I was going to do a different unit and then my timetable got messed up. So I'm uh, like, actually, yeah, climate change. Well, that's cases. serendipitous, isn't it, uh, I guess? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that. you know, thinking back to um, in my schooling, uh, so from the mid '90s through to the mid 2000s, you know, or uh, I mean, sorry, 2005 or six or something. Um, um, when I finished school, 2007. It, you know, I don't recall climate change really in high school at all, and and definitely not in primary school. Obviously, uh, I know it's changed a lot now, and it's very different at this stage. Um, you know, and yeah, as you said, Simone, even for you, uh, it was barely there, and it's sort of an issue that the response to it in our you know public life in our institutions uh through how we live uh has been lagging you know delayed from the reality the reality was you know so far you know so far in the past in our lives it's amazing how long it's taken for uh practices to catch up with it and in, and invariably i think they'll still be behind it as more of the climate reality unfolds you know i would hope that maybe you know these things will keep up and we'll we'll start to discuss climate change in a way that's far more relevant and contemporary. Uh, but, you know, I, I think that there's just a degree to which we have, uh, there's a lot of lag on climate change because acknowledging it and acting on its current present reality and also its project, you know, the kind of warming that we're already committed to, the world that is coming uh, and how it will look uh, is is something that we're just not very good at reckoning with in the day-to-day, in the present tense. So, um, but yeah, yeah we, it's complex, that one. And I think it's true, like, in terms of like primary school kids, it's like hard to tell them because it's mm. such a kind of, as we were saying, like depressing issue. Yeah. Like I tutor, um, I tutor some kids in English and we were reading like a text for their reading comprehension um, and about like climate change. And I had to explain to them what CO2 emissions were. Mm. And they were, they were 11. Um, so like that's, you know, old enough. They probably should know that by now, but also, like, I didn't want to be like, you know, climate change is going to be terrible. It's going to, <laughs> like, change the world irreversibly and there's nothing we can do about it, blah, blah, blah. Like, oh, I mean, but, you know, kids are actually, they're speaking about this as a father, like my five-year-old daughter, Nora, starting school in a few months. I'm always struck by how much they can take on in terms of the information. And I think just thinking, you know, a bit of a tangent here, but the I call them kind of, COVID kids, these kids that have been in, you know, preschool or, or in early years of school during COVID, uh, people keep talk, talking about, you know, uh, when we return to normal and things like that. I suspect that these kids are being trained really for, uh, you know, a youth of disruption. Their lives mm. are going to be disrupted more and more um, and, 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 and with increasing frequency and intensity if we don't do something about this, you know, now or this decade. Uh, so, you know, I, I, I think it's uh, important to perhaps realise that uh, pitching to the next generation, I actually think we should be pitching high and, and giving them all the tools and information that they can possibly be possibly be given. The best thing we can do for them, because we have failed them in so many other ways, is give them all the things that we do actually know. And I think sugarcoating and 
and, and you know all of those kind of traditional boomer notions of children you know oh think of the children actually it's better in my view to give them the full picture as as clearly as possible and 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 relate that to them and, and not set them up to to sort of be traumatized and disappointed by the world that they get uh and, yeah. and i know that sounds harsh um but it's it's sort of something that it's it's been a balancing act honestly with my own children um and uh with their friends and things like that you know you have to you can't just say you have to talk about how oh thousand dolphins di dolphins died today nora on the beach you don't want to just be like that but you know uh you want to say what's happening to the planet and 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 um, who's at fault is an important one because kids love to blame, love to point fingers and say, ah, it's, it's you know, it's it's Rupert Murdoch's fault and it's granddad's fault uh, and or something like that. <laughs> I love those indoctrination processes. But, yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> but no, I have to agree. And I mean, I think that climate literacy has actually come a long way in the younger generations. I remember mm -hmm. being in school a few years ago and yeah. thinking, um, quite clearly to myself, you know, oh, I, I try to care about things as much as possible, but the environment, I don't know, I just haven't quite gotten there yet yeah. compared to perhaps some of my more sort of recent revelations. But um, a few weeks ago, I, I do a bit of tutoring as well. And I actually posed the question to my students, um, what is the greatest issue our world is facing today? And I probably asked about five to 10 students to write an essay on this. And every single one of them wrote on climate change um, without fail. So mm. even though, yeah, I, I definitely had to explain to them perhaps some of more of the nitty gritties or the scientific side of things with the emissions yeah. and what's actually causing it, that actual awareness of like, this is a problem and something we need to be acting on. And I suppose that already like the beginnings of, um, leaning towards sustainability and thinking about the future, like this higher critical thinking I was noticing in like grade three and four. So I don't know, it's it's Beautiful. very interesting <laughs> to see how um, how far it's come really compared to even yeah. my my days in school. Um, so I would agree so, with yeah. that. When I look, you know, look at the school strikes for climate and look at all that anyway, I mean, I, there's a lot of pro progress there. And I think it's just absolutely hilarious when, um, you know, you hear like, uh, you know, parents worrying about their teenagers and what they're doing at the moment and that they're, they're on screens and things like that. They're probably mainly on there complaining about the world they've been fucking handed. So I, I, I think that it's just, you know, there is a big, uh, there's a big rift, a big, so I guess there's a big distance between um, the world, you know, people who are in their 50s and teenagers now. There's a massive political divide. And I think we will see that play out, you know, let's get those um, people voting, those young people voting as much as we can mm. and as early as we can, in my view. Yeah, so definitely there's there's good things going on in terms of, as you said, climate literacy. Uh, youth climate literacy, I would argue, is something that's really strong at the moment. So, And on a different note, uh, human-induced climate change is, you know, obviously, like, evident in the world around us already. Um but it's still such like a polarizing issue. So mm. why do you think this is? Oh, listen, that's a really sort of, um, there's a deep history to that in the last few decades. Yeah. I mean, uh, Oreskes and Conway have you know, this book, Merchants of Doubt, which goes into the ways in which, you know, the denialist lobby, you know, really got onto this early and, and, and built up a campaign that we still live with today that has successfully sort of convinced, um, you know, a large section of the media and the public that climate change is a hoax and, and isn't happening. And, and in a way that not many other issues have have had to deal with before. I mean, I guess smoking and tobacco was an equivalent and, and you know, the 
climate denial lobby stole the playbook from the tobacco lobby. Uh, you know, they took the idea of casting doubt on expertise and, and things like that, casting doubt about the science and the scientists themselves. So we're left with a really strange legacy that's kind of could have been avoided. I mean, there is an alternative history out there, another world perhaps in which uh, this was stopped in, you know, the late 80s, early 90s, you know, let, you know, there was, you know, maybe legislature was passed and we just went straight off fossil fuels without really worrying about it because we've become more dependent on fossil fuels at the same time as being more aware about climate change over the last three decades. So it's, uh, I think that it's a polarizing issue principally because and where I would point the fingers, aside from, you know, the denials and fossil fuel lobbies, it is media. I think it has been a, a real failure of representing an issue to the public and public interest journalism. So we'll say nonpartisan public interest journalism has failed to present this as an issue that is important to everyone on the planet. It is uh, it is really about, um, yeah, it is, it is, they've done it, it's, they've failed essentially to articulate this uh, outside of those kind of binary paradigms of left and right of um of conservative versus progressive uh, when really this is a you know an all-encompassing issue it will affect everyone and yeah and i think that's really where the failure is it's it's a it's, a, it's an issue to do with media practice uh and, and representation of the issues just absolutely appalling and we can even see that playing out now it's depressing to see even the way the abc here in australia covers climate it's it, the way we're Drifting with this is is more and more disheartening uh, when we get when we really start to look at it closely. So yeah, I think it's an issue with the media mainly, which is of course the thing that's perpetuated by the denialists lobby anyway. So, yep, that's that that's you know, that's where it's at in my view. Mm. It's um it's always a little bit terrifying when you start to I suppose like unpack or or peel back these dominant narratives that were sold mm. for such a long time, usually constructed by the media and politicians. And they, I suppose they eclipse these underlying truths, whether it's on climate or perhaps, you know, even our mm. colonial history and the way we're, yeah. we're taught about that. So um, I, I think relearning and actually like reconciling with or confronting some of those truths and understanding yes. that we're we're being like manipulated essentially. Yeah. And I, I th um, yeah, I think it's that's being like is. sold as truth in a way when it, yeah. it it's um quite quite the opposite of that. Yeah. So um I guess in that vein, how do you think language um, shapes the meaning and, sorry, I'll rephrase that. How do you think language shapes meaning and the public response to information about climate change? I mean, well, that's, that's, that's the thing I'm most passionate about, language. And I think language is critical. You know, it defines the terms by uh, which we think about, you know, these issues both privately and publicly. We share, you know, we share, you know, language or or meta-language, like very specific language about climate change and, and the terms by which we discuss these, which are perpetuated by media and politicians and even writers, um, uh, they define the limits of how we can express these things. So, you know, Kim Stanley Robinson, a great science fiction novelist, has this idea, you know, he spoke, speaks about this, even climate change itself is a term that limits our imagination. It's a kind of a synecdoche, it functions to stand in for something that's actually much worse than that word. Um, if we are looking at what's happening to the planet, the totality of that damage is not just about simply the climate changing. And so climate change functions as a shorthand that is insufficient in many ways. We are, don't have the complexity of knowledge or maybe even the discursive practice in life of when we talk about climate change, actually just specifying the one of maybe potentially 10,000 things happening to the planet that we could, ju could just say, you know, we don't just talk to each other about um, specifically 
you know, mass extinction and, and, and or, you know, about, you know, you know, die off, you know, of a certain of certain species or, you know, the arboreal dieback, you know, of the forest in, in Canada or, you know, melting ice. We, we tend to just say climate change and we just leave it at that. And I think, you know, I try to avoid, uh, I, I wrote a review recently of a great book uh, called Bewilderment by Richard Powers. Uh, and and he, it's a novel about climate change. And I point out that he goes to the, the, the extent of never really saying climate change in the novel. He specifies every time what he means, the specific thing he's talking about, the specific disaster or crisis or horrible thing that's happening on the planet, rather than just going, and this was climate change. So I think language is really powerful. And it, it even kind of drives a lot of public misconceptions as well. Um, and I think maybe a sophistic, more sophisticated terminology or lexicon around the planet would be something that would go a long way to building um, public uh, agreement on this issue, uh, pos positive public sentiment around it, as well as climate literacy. Uh, it, it's, a, you know, we already work within very narrow, a narrow set of linguistic terms for this area. Um, so, yeah, and that's why, and I think there's a tendency to, to acknowledge that in recent years. That's why there's been these, you know, mix of terminologies that have been trialed, like climate catastrophe and climate breakdown, and, and people are trying to play with it and go, how can we do this actual justice? Well, perhaps we just need to have a full dictionary of language for what's happening to the planet you know, a thousand things that we can all talk about and, and we know what that word, these words mean um, and things like that, you know, talk about sea level rise, about thermal expansion of the seas, all of these really speci specific things um, to know these. And that's to do, we talked about before with, you know, climate education, you know, right, down, right back to school ages. Um, so right now, I just don't think we have sufficient language for talking about the issue uh, in a simple way, in, in not a simple way, in a way where we can all agree and, 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 and come to a common meaning. So language is very powerful there. Mm, I can and imagine there's... that that sort of, oops, sorry, Simone, cutting off again. I can imagine that sort of level of specificity would help maybe cure some of the psychological distancing that we see from the public and just yeah. like how we can't tangibly seem to picture things or what's actually happening to the planet because it's all sort of like cooped up in this umbrella term of climate change so it's mm. easier to distance ourselves from that and actually again tangibly imagine what's happening would yeah. you agree with that I, I would say that's actually the, probably the primary thing that happens there is that by not really having a more detailed uh you know, you know, idiom for climate change. Uh, we we continuously make it abstract and distant. Uh, climate change, as a two words, is just such an abstract concept, and the details of it become more and more abstract. And I think specificity always closes that linguistic distance in your mind. Um, you know, if you you know, even linguistic theory supports that often. Is you know the idea that the more solid and concrete uh, an understanding of the term is in your mind, then the more quickly you can recall it and understand what it means. So it is an important um feature of maybe how i don't know where we'll go in the future with how we discuss climate change but I, I certainly think it would close the distance climate change will feel closer and sooner and more important and perhaps more oppressing uh you know matter if we you know uh define the terms of it more clearly and become more you know um uh familiar with with it and things like that so talking it's, it just goes back to the simple thing of talking about it more uh will make it more important it's really that it's really that clear. So bring it into our media properly, bring it into the way it's discussed in the public. Um, you know, let's get over the consensus gap where the you know people think that the science is still you know 
a 50-50 debate when actually we've got a 99% consensus on it. You know, there is this perception in the public when you, we, we you know, do surveys of the public, there is a perception that people don't want to talk about climate change. But when we ask people privately, um, we find that, you know, 70 to 80% of people want to talk about climate change, but they think that most people don't. So we've got a problem here. It's a, it's become a little bit of a taboo issue somehow. We want to talk about climate change. We want to talk about it more accurately, more often and deal with it. So I think that's, I think that's where it's at in terms of the language and the needs to, um, to, you know, deal with the issue. Yeah. And um, in another way that, you know, to deal with the issue is like, you know, convincing people who don't believe such mm. as, you know, family members and, you know, politicians. Um, so how can we, you know, change that and like act upon um, our desire to convince people that climate change is an issue that <laughs> needs to be addressed? Uh, Perhaps one of the... <laughs> Most important questions of our generations. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's what I'm just laughing. I, I, I have to laugh at the question. It's just such a, it's, it's an exceptionally important one and, ex, and and also one that we're constantly let down by. And, and <laughs> I think really the, the task of climate comms now is, is looking at people really on the fence or undecided, you know, the vaccine hesitant, these kind of categories of people who are still up for a reasonable discussion. Uh, in terms of the small amount of people, the cranky uncles you refer to, Simone, um, and the people who lead us somehow, uh, uh, you know, they, they constitute a minority somehow, the majority have voted for them, but they, you know, they're about eight to 10% of the Australian population. It's similar in other countries too. How do you deal with them? Because they're often quite powerful uh, and they take up room in a space in a room, you know, at your din you know, Christmas dinner, that uncle probably is really loud uh, and and things like that. So I don't know. It's a difficult one. I think the one way to talk about climate to those people is through this sort of notion of co-benefits, this idea that actually forget about trying to convince them that it's happening and climate change is happening. Convince them that the policies that are the response to this issue actually will benefit them. And, just, and, and I think we have to unfortunately accept that a lot of those people are too far gone and actually we just... <laughs> we have to tell them uh, that here we can just you'll get you know you'll benefit from it you'll have cleaner air your car will run for longer or whatever it might be those kinds of things we have to accept the realities of, of what you know what's happened and and also accept the sociological conditions which some people have come to denial through it's not that people willfully want to be wrong they think they're right so we have to accept that you know no one really wants to have incorrect no, uh, information or knowledge uh, so we have to work within, you know, accepting that and 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 outright climate deniers. It's a very difficult one, but I think it, we have to face certain realities that they're a minority, perhaps a decreasing minority in in some in some areas, and just um, tell you know try and trick them, for lack of a better way of putting it, trick them. <laughs> <laughs> I have yeah. heard um, of some reports where people have been able to like de-radicalize, like yes. Um, fascists yes. and like nazis and stuff like that yeah. could the same be done for climate deniers it, it can be done it has been done so climate inoculation you know john cook does all his research he's at the hub uh, you can well more importantly you can prevent people from becoming from 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 uh, being misinformed by climate denial information so it's actually more important to target potential uh, future climate deniers than current climate deniers if that makes sense uh, but definitely i think there is there's is total space for um you know 
dealing with climate denialists in, in terms of like conversion uh, conversion therapy. But um, you know, I have this character <laughs> in my novel who does that, uh, and it, it's it's but it's uh, it's interesting to sort of think about how would that occur? Are we ever going to have a government has a that has a state approved uh, climate denial misinformation? You know. Um, you know, like an AA meeting. Right? Yeah. Hi, I was, I'm, I'm Jeff. I was once a climate denier. Uh, I'm working on it. Um, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Uh, yeah. How, how we, you know, get those programs up and running uh, is, 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 you know, big question if we do that. But I think more importantly, it's about dealing with misinformation uh, and, and even fake news uh, right now for people who could become uh, climate deniers. Uh, so, yeah, I think getting onto it early is the really, is the real key there. I guess it comes back to, uh, again, I suppose, the media and education programs actually trying to empower people with information Absolutely. Um, yeah. and, and yeah, give them that agency rather than just spoon feeding them ideology yeah. and particular perspectives rather than endorsing that kind of critical thinking that could probably get us through this situation in a lot of ways. Yeah, <laughs> 100%, 100% that, that has my endorsement. Uh, there's, you've, you've just, there's nowhere to go with that. You've just finished that. That's brilliant. We need that. <laughs> so speaking of your endorsements, James, um, you have your own book, Children of Tomorrow, which is currently going through the publication process um, and is in many ways a climate change communication product. So without spoilers, <laughs> of course, yeah. sorry to assign so much to your book just there with my <laughs> judgments, but um, could you tell us a little bit more about your book? Um, okay, <laughs> I could attempt to. So Children of Tomorrow, uh, it's not, it's, it's so, you know, my, my uh, PhD is in literary and cultural studies and it's got a half component is, uh, you know, critical thesis and, and half component is the, is the novel. So it's, just, it's a split thesis. And um, so the, the novel's sort of, um, you know, it was built out of, I think I probably started writing it when I realised I was going to be a father. So um, I was sort of 25 and I had this idea that, I need to deal with some of these anxieties about the future and the fact that I'm bringing a child into this world. It's you know, it's a ridiculous. It seemed like a ridiculous idea. So, uh, you know, I went into the PhD program with the idea of researching how to do that. You know, I'd been, you know, I'd published fiction and, and and arts journalism already. You know, during my uni years and things like that, and was starting to do it more professionally. Uh, but I think I had this really burning desire to write this particular story. Um, mainly from the novels I'd read. You know, I've read so many great climate novels and climate novels aren't really spoken about much, but, um, and that's why I did my thesis on them as well. Uh, and I think I had this idea about going, trying to write a novel that was formally, you know, in terms of its form, um, different and try to address the, you know, the needs of climate change narratively in terms of dealing with large timescales and, you know, and also a global context, a large global context. So the novel, I, I built the novel as an episodic saga. You know, it's it's this sort of, um, it's the look at, at the, you know, the lives of this family and their friends. You know, it's a, kind of a large web of characters as they grow from about, you know, 2015 to the end of the century over time. And the kinds of traumas and and also the love and, 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 and hope that get translated through the generations and the kind of things we'll carry, you know, onto our children and our grandchildren in a kind of a very a rapidly changing world, a world that's not really ever changed this quickly before. So, and so I, you know, it's 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 sort of a love story, but it's not really. It's sort of a story about you know politics, but it's not really. I kind of play with a lot of areas, and because it's episodic, you know, each chapter is sort of a few years apart. We're constantly moving through time, 
and seeing where our characters are at. And it's 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 a sort of thing that's done by David Mitchell in some of his novels. Um, and you know, and it's done by James Bradley in his novel Clade. Uh, and and it's just sort of uh, yeah, it's, so it's a bit it's a bit experimental, but I also approached the novel in a, in a way where I wanted to make uh, climate change accessible and compelling and emotional. I think sometimes climate change lacks uh, emotional attention that we fail to sort of see how it will affect our emotional lives, our affective lives. You know, if you if you think about the way we live effectively, uh, I think that climate change presents a really, uh, really challenging landscape. You know, how do we talk to it about, how do we talk to our children about climate change? How do we actually cope with it ourselves? The more and more it becomes a present reality. When bushfires happen every second year, you know, when, you know, we see loss happening at personal and planetary levels, how do we live with that? And they're, they're the kinds of questions I was, I was asking when I was writing the novel. So yeah, and so the novel goes many places around the planet, um, goes across, you know, 80 years, um, and, you know, it deals with intergenerational legacy and things like that. What, what do we want to leave behind? Uh, you know, and the dedication at the start of the novel is, is I guess, indicative of what really the novel is about. Um, it's, you know, it's for Nora and Hadley, my children. And I say, to, you know, I say, may this world not be your own. The idea is that this novel is one in which I hope that our world doesn't become what this novel is. So it is, unfortunately, I was talking before about Doomsday. It has some propensity towards, you know, things getting worse. Uh, but there's little bits in there also that are about the, the rel what I call relative hope. There are, you know, little bits of resilience, little places where we, little spots or corners of life where perhaps we will improve things. So, yeah. So it's not... Have you read... Um, yeah, go. Have you read Things We Didn't See Calming by, um, I think it's Stephen Amsterdam? Yeah, yeah, I have. Um, so that's on, that's in my thesis a little bit too. It's a long time since I've read it. I think it must have come out in 2009 or 10. Um, mm. I think I must have read it before, well before I started doing the thesis. It yeah. sounds similar to yours in the sense that it's like episodic and it goes through yeah. like yeah. the first chapter is when he's a child mm. and then the last chapter is like oh, he's a very old man. Um, yeah, and I, many climate, yeah. I think there's, what I'm doing is not unique. A lot of climate novels do it. Um, you know, a few of them um, do it quite clearly. So uh, it's just, I think it's a, it's a sort of a new, it's a very, clear and obvious way to deal with large timescales in a way that isn't just a thousand pages. You know, my novel will be 300 pages probably in the final draft. And I want it to be in that, you know, a holdable novel uh, that isn't, you know, going to overwhelm people with scientific detail necessarily. Climate change is the context. It's not the, at the, it's not the forefront, every sentence, you know, slapping you over the head with the context of, you know, <laughs> the, you know the word climate change. So, um, yeah, it's 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 first and foremost about people's life, these characters' lives, um, but they just live within that unfortunate context that we also happen to live within. So uh, yeah, so it's not a you know, I don't know if it's science fiction or not. I don't know if it's speculative or not. Um, but it's it's definitely uh, because if it is speculative, then our reality is speculative. Our reality is science fiction or whatever. So um, I think that's the argument I would make for it that it's 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 sitting in that space between realism. And, and speculative or science fiction. So, yeah. And, and, and that's a great novel, by the way, um, Simone. And I think mm. I think climate fiction is a really, really, you know, extraordinary genre of fiction that has been under-examined. Um, and, yeah, so I, I'm looking forward to stop reading it, though, in a matter of weeks, you know, at the end of the PhD. I don't know if I'll read climate fiction again anytime soon, so, or write about it. <laughs> yeah, it can be a bit... Um overwhelming at times for sure <laughs> yeah, definitely overwhelming yeah and the second novel I've already 
pitched is not a climate novel. So um, yeah, <laughs> it's a very it's a historical novel. So um, but yeah, but I still got to as as Lydia said, I've got I'm in the sort of I've got a few months that I'll be working on the final draft of the novel. Just sort of some changes, mainly uh, updating it with what's happened in the past year. There's new science and there's new uh, new you know current events you know COVID has to change in my novel you know two of the chapters are set during the pandemic so I have to change some of the details and things like that so yeah just a little bit of final work yeah that's another whole tangent we could go down on like talking about how <laughs> COVID is how is covered in the media but um anyway <laughs> I have, we have a couple more questions to ask you yeah. so one of them is why did you decide to write fiction rather than pursuing other forms of communication, such as news writing? Oh, I'm not made for the 24-hour news cycle at all. That's <laughs> not – I can answer that in one sentence. And my older brother, David, he's a he's a uh, currently in a 24-hour cycle kind of news writer. Um, that's David Milner. Uh, he, he, so that's not uh, something I'm at all built for or interested in, um, you know, uh, I wouldn't want to write about the news because I hate the news. It's it's like you know I, yeah. I'm I'm more I'm more made for the the longer kind of form um, things and uh, yeah news writing would also just exhaust me. I just crumble under the pressure of the insanity of every single day because every single day seems completely insane at the moment. So I could, I'm glad I didn't choose to do that because look where I would have been writing during the pandemic about this. So. Yeah, no way, not for me. <laughs> it is um, interesting as a journalism student, that sort of cognitive dissonance I experienced myself, like, oh, I kind of hate the news in the media, <laughs> but I'm also like, I'm, I'm heading into this industry yeah. and, you know, yeah. hope to forge some sort of career out of it. But yeah, it's, well, yeah. it's, I mean, it's almost like a, a family member with a difficult relationship um, that's actually sort good. of situation. That's so. a good analogy. I mean, make no mistake about it, I hate climate change. Uh, <laughs> but... Um, yeah, the, the, the 24-hour news cycle would probably kill me. So um, not for me, yeah. <laughs> and um, what do you think the difference is, James, in the impact between fiction and non-fiction stories? So, for example, mm. how does a David Attenborough um, documentary perhaps compare to a Margaret Atwood novel? Um, I think they serve different kind of communities of, 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 for lack of a better word, consumers. You know, Attenborough's, uh, you, know, you know, Life of the Planet, you know, uh, Doco or, or his book that came out as well. Uh, they serve, a, I think, a different purpose. Uh, perhaps they uh, they serve um, they 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 are more uh, beholden. To, they're sort of more about uh, informing the public, and 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 they have a larger kind of pitch than say a Margaret Atwood novel. However, having said that, you know, Margaret Atwood's a massive writer. So when she writes, you know, her, her Mad Adam trilogy, and it's got client, you know filled with climate change, you have readers thinking about climate change then. I think really what the, the, the difference here though is, is that fiction allows um, you to go into a slightly deeper space and identify really closely with the problem and the process. And I think that's where maybe uh, nonfiction kind of gets it slightly wrong in that non-fictional forms think they're doing that, but the experience on the other end is often um, quite difficult and isolating and alarming and 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 we want we do have to experience those, those things with climate change and I, and I think there's non-fiction is absolutely necessary for this topic um, but I think there at the same time is a need to increase our fictional practices with climate change F climate change should be in far more novels the one thing I argue in my thesis that I still maintain would maintain now I've been maintaining it since the beginning is that if you actually were to 
say thousands of years from now, travel back in time as, a, as an archaeologist or a historian and look at our arts, our stories, our fictional stories to, tell, to get a, you know, a glean what was happening at, at the current time, there wouldn't be much evidence that climate change was happening. Think about the novels you read set now. They don't really discuss climate change. The characters are in a cafe, they're having lunch, whatever it might be. You're reading a Sally Rooney novel. Actually, no, to be fair though, the latest Sally Rooney novel does actually talk about climate change. But, you know, contemporary novels, people are just living out their lives and they're not living out their lives narratively in a climate change context. It's not really addressed as the backdrop when it so clearly is. And if you look back at sort of over a hundred years, 100, you know, 150 years ago, and look at novels set during the industrial age, that's a massive thing that was happening, you know, the Industrial Revolution. All those novels have signs of the Industrial Revolution in them. So somehow we've chosen not to put climate change into our realism, into our real, you know, formally realistic novels, you know. Um, you know, looking at my cupboards behind me now, so many of these books, it's easy to simply point out that these characters and these people live lives in the Anthropocene in a climate changing world, but we don't do it so often. So that's, that's, that's what I would say is important. That's really interesting because, you know, I think like other social issues such as like I don't know, sexism or racism or um, things like that, like they're discussed very often in literature. Yes. Um, and that really, I think, helps people to understand it and to like, you know, move forward and for society to move forward. Mm. So do you think that like having like discussing climate change in literature would also help society like move forward and like address it? I think in literature is a different matter because it's a niche. I think in storytelling generally, video games, cinema, TV, novels as yeah. well, all of it. So all of it, Simone, I think all, and I, I'd like to hear what you think on this one actually, but I think it would help to normalise the issue, to make it, you know, when we work, oh, the latest Netflix series, we are all talking about, you, you know, um, Oh, there's climate change. Well, of course there's climate change. We're all living in climate change. So if we just normalized it more, you know, you know, everyone's watching Ted Lasso at the moment or Squid Game or whatever. But you know, there was an episode of Ted Lasso recently where you know there there is they addressed you know pollution in Nigeria and things like that, and climate change is mentioned and and and, and even Foundation, which has just come out on Apple TV, they've reshifted Asimov's original focus and there's mentions of you know a planet that denied science and its sea levels are rising. So we are trying to do this a little bit more and more. I think we'll see this a lot. This is actually where I think it's going and this is the final chapter of my thesis. I think that in major you know popular media, so the screen essentially, we're going to see climate change just become a really common thread this decade. It's just inevitable narratively that that's what we'll start to do. Um, so yeah, I think it will help to normalize the issue and really press it. And that that's a political point. It will become a more of a pressing matter because you know that's how we we live as now consumers of, of all sorts of the, the the word of the you know our time is content. You know we are absorbing all this content, and if climate is in it, well then we will start to think about climate more. And then we will vote, we will demand certain things, lives will change because of that. So the arts have a responsibility here, um, as much as politicians and journalists and, 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 and academics, yeah. So just on this then, James, to sort of wrap up today's discussion, as you've just alluded to, you know, storytelling and the arts in general is often very marginalised by STEM and politics. Mm, yeah. Contrarily to this, do you think storytelling could ultimately save us from, and I'm going to use a very loaded word here, climate catastrophe? Um, <laughs> there's all sorts of articles about, you know, uh, the genre cli-fi, you know, climate fiction cli-fi, 
uh, Clarify will save us uh, and things like that. Um, <laughs> I, I think more importantly, okay, I don't think a genre of, of fiction is necessarily going to save us uh, in the sense that, you know, when I say save us, I mean, ameliorate, make this better because we're already on a bad track. We already know that we're into committed warming. Um, sea levels will rise. That's locked in uh, for a long time. Uh, we're going to see temperatures rise. Um, for, for you know, in the mid, in the you know, in near to mid future, uh, and I think in terms of saving us, I think what's more important actually is maybe the concept of storytelling as opposed to fiction itself. Fiction's a part of storytelling. I actually think, uh, in many ways, what we've been doing, broadly speaking, you know, all of these disciplines put together, is we've been failing to tell this story. So we've been failing to tell the story of climate change in in real life. In fiction, in politics, the story of climate change has not been told properly. And that's just at a large macro level here. You know, I'm talking about that almost abstractly. I think the better we tell this story about what's happening, uh, and also maybe that's not about we, it's about the story being recognized, not just how we tell it, but the, the story is unfolding in non-linguistic spaces, in, you know, in the natural world, you know, in trees and in, you know, in animals and the whole biosphere. Uh, if we can start to actually comprehend that story properly and also tell that story from the human point of view as well, uh, I think we will start to see a, a collective, uh, a better shift in the sort of collective consciousness of what we need to be doing. Um, so, yeah, I think storytelling is the really important part here, you know, and, and, and that's what, you know, you hope for when you're writing fiction, you, know, you want to tell a compelling story. The, the climate change story has to be more compelling, you know, the story about why we are being... Um, why we are all being basically exploited by a very small number of people on the planet. And mainly we're talking about a small number of very wealthy men. Uh, and Jeff Sparrow's got a book coming out soon about this, about climate change and capitalism, which I'm, um, I'm looking at, I'm reading, I'm lucky to be reading the manuscript of early. Uh, it comes out next month. And it's basically about that. The real crime here is that a very small number of people have exploited billions to pollute our planet. Okay, so this is a deeply political issue. We haven't gone into politics here much, but really, what a, a better story will lead to better politics. I think you know, better political response to the problem. So, yeah. Excellent. Thank you so much for that, James. A really powerful note to end today's episode on. Mm -hmm. So, um, thanks, guys. You, where uh, can sorry, go on. Okay. <laughs> just, yes, th thanks, thanks. You guys are great. Uh, I wish you could actually hear more, more of you. To be honest. <laughs> Um, well, thank you, James. Um, <laughs> where can we find you on social media? Um, uh, I am actually on Twitter. I really do. I, you know, uh, maybe, I don't know, it was, I think Jess and I went overseas and just turned off social media once, maybe de like many, many years ago, and I didn't get back on most of it. So I'm not really on Facebook or anything. I'm on, I'm on Twitter. Uh, so you can find me. Uh, I think it's, you know, at J Bergman Milner. You, know, you can find me there. Um, generally tweeting about uh about trivial things actually star wars stuff like that um but a bit of climate change as well yeah so and yeah you can look me up on the climate change communication research hub as well but yeah twitter i also you know will i'll also be, I put up you know the things i've been writing um climate novels i've been reviewing lately and things like that so and yeah that's where most of my um uh, as i build up towards the novel you know coming out in, in, um down the track well, that's what you know, I'll, have, I'll be more active there, of course, as well. So, yeah, uh, yeah.
Brilliant. Well, thank you so much again for joining us on today's show. Um, that's sadly all we have time for today, but we'll be back next week at 12 through Radio Monash. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, thank Mike. you. Thanks, Lydia.